You're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast, a show devoted to board and card games, recorded on 8th of February 2014. Episode 12, Why Can't We Be Friends? Welcome to the Broken Meeple. On today's show, we talk about the more streamlined format of the Broken Meeple Podcast from this time going forward. I give my first impressions on Robinson Crusoe. I talk more about the topic that is going around every co-op gamer's mind, the alpha gamer's problem, and I give my top 10 favourite co-ops of all time. I am your host Luke Hector, also known as that piece of ice that stopped your hacking attempt in Android Netrunner. Hello and welcome back to the Broken Meeple. Sorry it has been so long since I did the last episode. Episode 11 was done back in early January and it's been around a month since I got this one out. And apologies for that, it has been a very busy month for me for two reasons. One, I work as an accountant as my profession and that means that January is effectively a month of hell here in the UK and I've been just torn up with work throughout that entire month. Not only that, but my recent progression onto YouTube means that I've had to hurry up and get some content to put on YouTube, especially with February being co-op month. It means that there's been quite a lot of work to do and I just haven't got round to being able to do a podcast. However, that's going to change. The podcast will run a minimum of one per month without fail. If I get the spare time, I will do two in a month. But rest assured, there will always be at least one podcast in a month. I hope to do two though. And now that January is out of the way, that hopefully should be a lot easier. The blog itself is still going on with written reviews and the YouTube channel is slowly getting populated with new videos. I'm doing several types such as unboxing videos, how to play tutorials and of course video reviews of various accessories and board games, that kind of thing. I hope in the future that I might be able to get the expertise to do app reviews as well because there's a lot of board game apps, particularly on the iPad and I think it's worth reviewing those from time to time. As for the podcast itself, it's been going through a few changes in the last few episodes, I'm sure you'll have noticed, but I now want to try and get a streamlined format, because the more and more I try and keep varying how I do the podcast, the more convoluted it gets, and the more confusing it is for listeners to know exactly what they're listening to. So I'm going to stick to a new structured format, for future podcasts and occasionally additional topics will come out. It depends what's hot on the wire at the time. But at the point, it's going to start off with an introduction, like now. Then there will be a first impression, just one first impression, but a more detailed one of a particular game. There will then be a topic discussion of which I will take a subject area unique to board games and card games and talk about that, of which I would be more than happy to read through your comments and discussions on such a topic as well. And then there will also be a top 10 list. Yes, it's been ages since I've been able to do any type of top chart. In fact, I think I've done two top three charts in the past on this podcast. And obviously top three doesn't really mean much, even though I have had some good feedback on those. But When it comes to a top list, you want 10, and I religiously watch the top 10 lists done by the Dice Tower team on a regular basis. It gives me a lot of joy at work to listen to those, particularly the banter between the three of them. Unfortunately, I'm sort of Billy No Mates here with this podcast, so I can't quite measure up to that level of banter. But I'm going to start doing top 10 lists now, so we're going to kick off this 
podcast with a top 10 co-op list for this time. And funny enough, yeah, I think you would have seen that coming because after all, it is February and that means it's co-op month for the Broken Meeple. Every game review, unboxing, tutorial, topic, top 10, everything done during February is going to be on a co-op game. That is my theme for this month. The themes are not particularly structured throughout the year as such. It's just on a whim, I feel like doing a theme. I did it in October with Arkham Horror Month. And now in February, I feel like doing it with co-ops. I don't want to do theme months too often though, because one, it restricts what I can and can't review in a month. And secondly, because there's usually quite a lot of games in that particular category, it means that I am really worked off my butt in order to get the theme month under control. Arkham Horror pretty much killed me trying to do that within the space of three weeks, given that I was on holiday for a week. And even this co-op month is proving to be quite a challenge, considering I'm also doing video reviews as well. But that's what I mean. Things will be back to normal in March in terms of reviewing games as and when they come. And I'm starting to get more out there in terms of playing games with people I've met on Twitter, uh, board game clubs. There's the UK Games Expo coming in May that I'm really looking forward to. I've already bought my hotel tickets for that. And there's going to be hopefully more coverage and more games to review as I get to know a few retailers and publishers over time. It's all building up and after all we all had to start off small and build up to a certain level. I mean I'm sure if you ask any of the top-notch American style podcasts like the Cardboard Jungle, not just another gaming podcast, the Dice Tower, that, those kind of people, then they obviously had to start from somewhere. They didn't just suddenly start big. They got big over time with patience and hard work and that's what I want to do with this podcast as well. Anyway, that's enough me rabbiting on in this intro, so let's get on with the first section of the podcast today, and that is First Impressions. Obviously, this being co-op month, my first impressions are going to be on a cooperative game. And this one is probably going to get me a little bit of flack from some people. It depends what your feelings on this game are. The one I've chosen this time is Robinson Crusoe Adventure on the Cursed Island. This was published by Portal Games in 2012, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce the name of the designer, but I recommend just going on Board Game Geek and giving him a look-see, because he's done one or two fairly good games in the past. Now, this is a cooperative game from one to four players, uh, recommended ages 14 and up, and takes around two to three hours minimum, I would say, to play. It is quite a long game. Now, Robinson Crusoe involves you being on a tropical island, an island in the middle of nowhere, and you are forced to survive against the odds. Now, the way that this game works, unlike most others, is that it has a scenario booklet full of different ways you can play the game. The most common way of playing this is effectively the castaway style scenario, which is you're on the island, you want to get off it, so you have to build a wood fire in order to signal for help while surviving against Mother Nature, animal predators, and obviously trying to feed yourself along the way. Now, it's this is kind of like a Euro-style co-op game, I would say, because the way the mechanics work and the way everything's all structured on the table does make it seem very Euro-like. It's not quite as sort of in-your-face Ameritrash style as certain other ones like... Uh, well, let's take 
a couple, for example, you know, Ghost Stories and Flashpoint. This is this is very much a Euro style co-op game. Now, you start off as one of four different characters. Let's, let's assume we're going from a four-player perspective here. And you take it in turns to place your markers on the table. Now, the markers can be placed in all sorts of different areas on the board to signify what you want to do. You can either boost the party morale by effectively tidying up your camp. You can scout and explore nearby locations, which are represented on a hexagonal tile grid. Uh, you can also go hunting for predators in the hope that you can kill them for food and skin, that kind of thing. And you can also try and build a shelter. You can try and build up defenses against outside predators. And you can also just gather resources such as wood and food. So there's quite a lot you can do. And even on top of that, you can also set yourself time to build inventions that will help you throughout the game. Now... Some elements of this game I liked, and some of the elements of this I didn't. I was looking forward to playing this game for a long time. This got a lot of hype when it was being released, and it's very highly rated on Board Game Geek. I believe it's ranked number 13 at this current time. Now, it obviously gave me a lot of, ooh, you know, yes, I really want to play this, and I was lucky enough to get to play it at a recent Portsmouth on Board game group. Now, I felt a little underwhelmed by the time I was finished with this. Now, stick with me here. I know some of you are already like grabbing your pitchforks when I say this, but there are elements of this game that I like and some elements I don't. So let's start off with the pros. First pro is the cards. In this game, you have an event card that you draw each turn, which usually signifies something bad happening. It's rare that anything any good happens in this game to you. This is pretty much the game slapping you in the face for minute one. But... The cool thing with the cards is that you can perform a particular action to mitigate the damage or get a bonus, that kind of thing. However, doing so also puts it aside so that you might have to do a secondary action later, or if you don't do anything about it, it might actually cause something even worse to happen. The best element with the cards, though, are the ones you pick up when you go and do things like inventing or gathering that kind or hunting, that kind of thing. Because there's separate decks of cards with particular events that happen as you're doing something else. If you draw one of these cards, you read out the first half of it, which is the first event, and decide whether this is happening or whether you're going to ignore it. If you ignore it, then you just simply don't get a bonus for doing so. Or even the bad side. But if you choose to do it, you then have to shuffle that card along with your normal event deck that you draw every turn anyway and when it pops back out of the deck the secondary effect happens which tends to be something biting you in the back after you did something good earlier so i'll take for example you you get an event that well i'll make up one for example it might be in the game it might not be but let's say an event tells you that you found a particular supply of mushrooms you were out gathering and you came across a small clearing and you found a different type of mushroom and you thought oh this is plentiful we could get this for food so you choose to harvest it and you've got some extra food cubes for that round if it then comes back up later though the secondary effect could be something like food poisoning where you realize that the mushrooms you took earlier actually weren't safe to eat now this is the part of the game i really like because that for a euro style co-op game this is really thematic in the sense that Events that you do earlier come back to bite you later and they make sense. 
this was something I really liked and it was always good to be able to draw more event cards even just for the sake of it just so you had a nice story to immerse yourself into. However, there are elements of this game where I think the theme detracts a little bit and my beef is with the inventions. Now, with the inventions, you've got all sorts of things that you can do. And when I say inventions, I mean just sort of tools that you can create. And we're talking simplistic tools. We're talking fire, shovels, knives, rope, baskets, that kind of thing. Because obviously you're on a deserted island. You don't exactly have a manufacturing plant to hand in order to do what you want. Now, you have two choices. You can either devote the entire day to the invention so that you always invent it. No problem. Nothing goes wrong. Or you can devote half a day so that you can go off and do something else for half a day. But the risk of doing that is that you have to roll these three dice, depending on what you're doing. And you might succeed or you might fail the task in hand. You might also injure yourself while doing it. Or you might have to pick up one of those event cards specific to the task you're doing. And then potentially shuffle it back into the main deck like I explained before. Now, with some of the inventions, that kind of makes sense. I would imagine that if you were building something pretty major, it might take you some time to do. But a whole day? I mean, you. I'll give an example. The one that really bit me when I played this game was you can invent fire. Fair enough. You're going to have to do it with the twig and leaves, I would imagine. It's not like you're carrying a lighter. And it may take some time to do it, but fair enough. It's, you know, a day even to do that? I mean, surely it wouldn't take a day. And then on top of that, you can then invent the fireplace. How does it take a day to invent a fireplace? I mean, you've got fire at this point. Put wood down, set fire to it, bit of dry grass, fire. Took me a quarter of an hour. It's exactly how does that take a day? And then even worse than that is how it can possibly injure yourself and, I mean, fail at the task, maybe, if you're slightly incompetent, but to injure yourself as well? I mean, you're building a fireplace. Unless I'm actually going to stick the twig and leaves on my arm and then do that, I can't see many ways you could injure yourself apart from maybe getting a splinter. You know, and I've had counter-arguments to this where you would have to say, you'd have to use your imagination a bit and assume that when you went to gather wood, this happened and things like that. But that's a stretch of the imagination with some of these, particularly if it takes a day to still do it. I mean, Pathfinder already has enough issues in terms of stretching the imagination to work its theme but this is going along the similar lines just in a different context some inventions okay you would imagine would take a little while or it might injure you in the process but uh, the the regularity that you could injure yourself and end up in some weird adventure while you're doing it just seems a bit a little bit unrealistic in my opinion and that did put me off the game a bit especially when I was the cook And I had to basically get into my head that it was taking me several days to make a fireplace. It just really didn't make sense to me on that front. The other problem I have is that the characters don't seem very different from one another. They have different abilities, which you can acquire things called determination points throughout the course of the game, depending on your morale level. And you can use these to spend on those abilities and they do different things. Now, that's fine, but that's the only different thing that really stands out between them. And that's assuming you actually use the abilities that often, because most of the time you never have enough determination points anyway. But other than that, the only difference between the characters is just how many wound levels they have and how often they can take so many wounds before the morale of the party goes down. And I have to admit, that's quite a nice little mechanic, the fact that your morale decreases the more you get wounded. That makes sense. 
but I played the cook and I just never felt like the cook. Whoopee, I could cook a little bit of food, I could scrounge a little better, and my unique invention was a fireplace that somehow took me an entire day to invent. But other than that, I might as well have just been playing generic character number two. There really wasn't that much difference between the four characters other than these abilities. So I just never really got into being able to like roleplay my character and say I did this and this. Um, but like I say, it sounds like I'm blittering the game. Again, there are good things about it. It is a good challenge. Boy, does this thing smack you around when you're not looking. It's, oh, you know, not only do the events hurt you, but the predators hurt you. Not even having a shelter hurts you because you've got to roll weather dice at the end of a round. And depending on whether it's cold or raining or snowing, don't ask me how it snows on the tropical island, but hey, that's just the way the game works. Then you obviously lose more food or lose wood because resources get wet or they dry up and go rotten or you just shiver to death, in which case you're losing wounds through that. But this game punishes you. I mean, if you don't like hard games, then avoid this because this one is not an easy game to beat. It's going to take a couple of tries and you are really going to have to focus on which tasks you're going to do because there's no optimal route or at least not one that sticks out in mind anyway. It's the case that you've got to decide which one of your decent actions is worth doing now in the hope that you won't get screwed over by not doing the other one. So it is a welcome challenge for a co-op game and the card mechanic works very well. In terms of component and setups, well, it takes a while to set the game up, I must admit, which is a bit of a another sort of downer for what it is and also component quality is okay it's not bad but there's nothing that sticks out for the fact that it's a 55 quid price tag on this game the board looks very period and it looks good it's got the unique style of like pin-up boards and stuff like that but it's mostly just brown all over the place you know light brown dark brown 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 so it doesn't look like the most striking of boards when you set it out and on top of that, you know, the, the invention cards, you know, they're just basic artwork and then brown and brown. And and one thing that sort of got on my beef is that some of the abilities on the character cards and some of the cards is written in old style calligraphy font. Now, yes, that makes it look a bit more thematic and periodic, but boy, is it hard to read. I had to squint a lot in order to make out what on earth it was trying to say. And that's a little bit of a pain, but that's more nitpicking, really. Um, but the, another pro that I will go into is that there is a lot of variety in this game. Now, we were playing the castaway scenario, and I just have a feeling that maybe the castaway scenario was not for me. It didn't wow me playing a scenario where all you're doing is just putting together a big wood signal fire, the end, job done. But there's a lot of other scenarios in this game, and they change dramatically how you play. You could have one where you are a bit like Indiana Jones, where you are... You've landed on this volcano island instead, and you have a certain amount of time to collect relics before you get off the island before it explodes. You've then got a cannibal island, which is more similar to the type of stuff you had in the King Kong movies, where you had to survive against the natives for a certain amount of time before you could be rescued, and that meant setting up defences, and almost a bit like a zombie attack, really. And there's more scenarios on top of that and that is one thing that would probably bring me back to this game because it sounds like I've been belittering it a lot and to be fair I've rated it six you know it's it's not a bad game and I could probably enjoy it given a different scenario I think I just don't think the castaways one worked for me with this whole sort of taking a day to do everything and even then that's still going to bug me in other scenarios but I would like to play this game again and try some of the other ones particularly Cannibal Island that sounds pretty good fun and so does Volcano Island 
and see whether I could get a little bit of a rekindle into this game. But at the moment, for something that is likely to be mostly a solo experience, £55 is a lot to spend on a solo co-op game that isn't just a ton of cards like Legendary or Sentinels in the Multiverse. And my alpha gamer there wasn't too much issue with it uh you you certainly it's going to take a while for someone to explain the rules to you and this game could potentially suffer from alpha gamer quite a bit i didn't have an alpha gamer problem when i played it but certainly because there's a lot of rules and because it's a very tight game to play that slaps you around i'll bet you that if you've got an alpha gamer in a group he's going to start taking control i think it's almost unavoidable with this game so it's just first impressions. Like I say, I've played it once and that was my initial feelings on the game. But I would like to try it a few more times and see if my like for it could rekindle. It's going to be one of those games where I just need to try the different scenarios and see if something speaks out to me. But for now, I'm going to be giving this one a miss in my collection. Which is a shame because I do like co-op games and I don't like it when I find one that just doesn't really make the collection. So that's Robinson Crusoe, Adventure on the Cursed Island. Maybe I'll like it eventually, but for now, not really for me. Okay, we're going to take a brief look at a topic that comes up with regards to co-op games in general, and that is the Alpha Gamer. Now, Alpha Gamer is the type of person who likes to take control of the situation and start dishing out orders, kind of like the guy who likes playing the Admiral too much in a war game. Now, this causes some issues, but also one or two benefits with games. Having somebody take control and explain the rules and recommend a good way of doing it can essentially help you to win the game if they're experienced. However, what tends to put people off co-op games is the fact that having someone just pretty much dictate the best way to do the game doesn't give you the same amount of enjoyment as if you could make your own decisions and come up with your own ideas. However, if you're new to gaming and new to this new to the game you're playing, then it can be difficult to get someone out of the alpha gamer routine. And it does depend on the person in general. Some people are minor alpha gamers in which case they sort of turn on and turn off depending on who they're with. But you do get one or two people now and again who just constantly take control and it ruins the experience for a lot of people. Now it depends on the game as well whether this becomes a major issue because not every co-op game is susceptible to it. My original worst one for it was Pandemic. Now Pandemic feels to me, if you go onto my blog and read my review of it, you will notice I think of it more as an abstract puzzle game than I do a cooperative because there is usually an optimal way of doing it, and after a while, you do tend to puzzle the game out. As soon as it becomes more abstract than it is cooperative, suddenly there is more chance for an alpha gamer to step in and say, no, we should be doing this, because otherwise we're not going to win, and it ruins the pandemic experience for me in a group. Now, I like it with certain expansions, and I like playing it solo on an iPad, but that's one reason why I get put off it in regards to a cooperative game and the game I gave my first impressions on earlier actually Robinson Crusoe is another example it's a complex euro style co-op game that slaps you around silly from minute one 
you can guarantee that there's going to be occasions where an alpha gamer is going to ruin that game for a lot of people as a result. Because even though there's not necessarily an optimal way of doing it, there certainly is going to be one guy who thinks, no, no, we must do this. Honestly, must. You know, if we don't do this, we're going to die. It's, and it's a silly little mentality to have. Not every game is susceptible to it, though. I'll give one example. Flashpoint Fire Rescue, one of my favourite co-ops. The idea with that is, yes, okay, you're in a team, you've got your firefighters, and you've got to work out the best way to get the victims out of the burning building. But because the fire and what happens in the game is random, in the sense of how it spreads and everything, there is no optimal way of playing it. So every action you take is a good one. And this helps me so much when I explain this game to other people. I can basically say, they'll say to me, well, you know, what what do I do here? I'm not entirely sure what my options are. I can list out five or six options for that par- character to do, and it, every single one will be a good action. There won't be one other than sit on your backside and, I don't know, pull out a cigarette and have a smoke, that would be determined as a bad idea in that game. So whether they need to put out a fire to destroy or remove a hazardous material, to rescue a victim, to check out a point of interest, to open or close doors for the dog to get through, to get to an area of the building that no one else is at, to change your crew identity so that you can fulfill a different role, to operate the fire engine, everything is a good action. So it's easy to explain all the options to them and then they can make their own decision and they feel like they're getting into the game. If I just turned around and said, nope, you must do this. But, but uh, what do I feel like doing? Nope, nope, you must do this. Go away. You know, it's just, it would not work as well and people won't enjoy that aspect of a game. Now, I wouldn't say that I'm completely devoid of being an alpha gamer. I, When I first started gaming, I must admit, once or twice, particularly with new players, I did suffer a little bit from that type of syndrome, effectively. But nowadays, I've gotten more used to playing games in general, and I like teaching new players now because a lot of my friends are relatively new to games as well. So I don't have that problem anymore, and I can just accept that, you know, we're going to play this game, we're going to enjoy it, we may not win it, but no matter. And that's probably the other thing that drives an alpha gamer forward, the desire to win. Now, if I'm playing a competitive game, then yeah, I'm, I'm out to win. I'm quite a competitive person. But if we're working together, there's only so much competitiveness I can raise up to beat a board game. It's So it means that I can enjoy just having the fun in the group with a co-op game, even if it means we're not necessarily going to win. And when you're playing something like, let's say, Robinson Crusoe and Ghost Stories, or even Eldritch Horror and Arkham Horror, you kind of get the impression you're going to lose more times than win anyway. So it makes the time when you do work together well and win so much more satisfying. So it really does depend more on the mentality of the group you're with. And in the end, alpha gamers, I suppose, are becoming less and less common now. I think the more people socialize with each other, the more you get to know someone, the alpha gamer tends to be not as prevalent as it used to be. Certainly not here in the south of the UK anyway. There's obviously loads of areas where I haven't met people for games, but down where I live, I think the alpha gamer issue is relatively minor whenever it comes across. So it's a one of those things that's dying out, thankfully, because the alpha gamer can ruin my experience of a game if they don't let me make my own decisions from time to time. But all in all, that's it's just one thing to bear in mind. If you've got someone who likes to give out orders, then 
be careful, be wary when you're going to play a cooperative game with them. If you're playing a competitive game, it doesn't matter. You know, it makes no difference. But when you want to work together, you want to work together as a team. That is what makes a co-op game great. The fact that you can work together and roleplay in a team and enjoy it as a team. It just makes the victory so much more worth it when all of you working together was the cause for the victory and not just one guy barking out the right orders at a time with his green beret hat on. So that's essentially my take on the Alpha Gamer. Does the Alpha Gamer bother you? Do you have an Alpha Gamer in your gaming group that causes you a bit of grief every time you play? Or do you agree with me in the sense that I think that Alpha Gamers are dying out these days and there isn't that many of them around? Feel free to put your comments in on my blog. Send me an email. I'd be happy enough to chat along with you about them. And hopefully, like I say, hopefully you don't have that many Alpha Gamers in your area. So that's enough on that topic. Let's move on to the next segment. The top 10 co-op games. Finally, I get to do a top 10 list on this podcast. I was tempted to do this as a video thing, a bit like the Dice Tower, but I think it's easier to do them while speaking into a microphone than it is to stare at a camera for ages. Not to mention co-ops can... Sorry, not co-ops. Top 10s can take a fair while to do. And the problem I have with my equipment is that the camera only records a maximum of half an hour at a time. So constantly having to get up and get down in order to switch the camera over, not to mention possibly even switch memory cards because recording in full HD takes up a lot of space. It just seems easier to do it as a podcast element for now. And to be honest, even the Dice Tower do top 10s on the podcast and it worked pretty well on there. So that's enough rabbiting on about that. My first top 10, top 10 co-op games in my opinion... Now, I will stress this, in my opinion. This is not the quintessential top 10 co-op games of all time from everybody's perspective. You may disagree with some placements. You may wonder why your particular game isn't even in the top 10. But I will give honourable mentions to some. And I will mention that there are some co-optive games that I have not played yet. If I've not played it, I can't rank it. It's just the way it is. However, I like to think that after looking through Board Game Geek and highlighting just co-op games that I think I have played 95% of the most well-known co-op games that exist out there. So I'd like to think that I've got a pretty good standing on which co-op games I like and haven't missed out too many. But like I say, when someone shows me a new co-op game, I'm always up for giving it a go. So let's make a start. Number 10. Number 10 is a co-op game that actually won an award in the year it came out. And at first glance, you wouldn't even think it was a co-op game, because it just comes in a small little box, and it's effectively just a handful of cards. But this co-op game, I have to put on my chart, not just because I enjoy playing it, but because it's so innovative in the way that it works. And my number 10 is Hanabi. Hanabi is a light card game where you have to put on a fireworks display... And that's pretty much the theme there. You have to put on the fireworks display and get matching cards. It's not exactly a thematic game. But the cool thing with this is that you can only play the fireworks in number order and of the same colour at a time, from one to five. Now, obviously, that seems easy. I mean, okay, just collect numbers and colours and put them in sets. Where's the difficulty in that? Aha, this is where the innovative bit comes in. 
not you normally when you have a card game you have your hand and you look at it and you see what's going on not in this one it's back to front you have to play with your hand of cards facing away from you so that everybody else knows what's in your hand but you don't know yourself you then have to give clues to the other people on your table to signify whether something is of a particular number or whether something was of a particular color. And there are restrictions as to what you're allowed to say. You can't do full communication and you certainly can't just blat out say that is a red five in your hand. And also if there are multiples of a particular card in your hand, then they they have to go along with that fact. They can't just single them out if you've got three of them in your hand. And... This creates a very interesting dynamic of teamwork because you cannot alpha gamer this game at all. It is impossible to win with one guy barking out orders. And because you have no clue what's in your hand, you have to trust your teammates to help you win this game. And it's not easy. You only have a finite number of clues that you can do and you can recharge them, but you make free errors and that's it. You know, three errors and done, and you total up the points to see how well you've done. There's no sort of like, eventually you're going to lose more than likely. I mean, there is a way to win, but it's not common that happens. But the idea is that you're trying to get up to a certain points level to see whether you did well or did brilliantly or did rubbish. But this is quite a hilarious one to play sometimes because everybody in their mindset picks up a card and looks at it the instant they do. The amount of times you play this game where somebody will pick up a card and look at it without remembering that it's meant to be facing away from them is countless. I swear I did it six times in the first game I played because it's just such a hard routine to get out of. But it's a nice little card game. It's not in my collection because it's a bit hard to get hold of at the moment. But I'm sure it will probably come back into print at some point or maybe you can get it from a foreign publisher instead i think you can get german versions somewhere but it's a cool little card game and it deserves a number 10 spot on the list so that's hanabi number nine number nine was the first cooperative game that i believe that the first mainstream cooperative game anyway that introduced the idea of a traitor now most cooperative games you're working together towards the common goal In certain games, though, you have a potential, and I say a potential, you're not even certain at this point, that there is a traitor in the party who wants the whole plan to fail and has his own agenda. This is a really cool mechanic in co-op games, and it can work well. It depends on the mentality of the group sometimes, but this was the first game that ever brought this element into it, and it's called Shadows Over Camelot. Now, Shadows Over Camelot is based on our Arthurian legends where you have King Arthur and his knights and you have to complete quests like the Holy Grail or find Excalibur or defeat the the Saxons I think it is um, you know or d- defend your castle against sieges that kind of thing and you play cards in at various locations to do it however you have to also perform evil actions on your turn which basically represents Uh, events happening or certain quests going out of control and the traitor in the party is trying to keep his identity secret but also slow down the party or screw them over without them realizing it and this is really cool because you have to shuffle your identity cards before the game starts and there is no certainty unless you make it this way that there is even a traitor in the party but no one trusts anybody that's the great thing You might have four players in the game and there'll be a chance that there's a traitor in it, but you're never certain that the traitor actually got into the mix. 
but no one trusts anyone. So you're constantly looking at people's actions where you can either, as your evil action, you either lay down catapults that are laying siege to your castle, you lose a life point, or you draw an event card which is bad and makes something bad happen. And depending on what you do or depending on where you go and how you do, you're going to get people pointing the finger left and right going, ooh, moved over there. And you put that card down? No, you didn't want to do that. Ooh, traitors. You know, it's just everyone accuses everyone, left, right and center. And then occasionally you can accuse someone of being the traitor. And if you manage to single them out, then great. Points for the winning side. And the traitor is restricted to a fairly lame sort of like one action per turn mechanic that you can do for the rest, which is a bit of a downer, but playing the traitor is so much fun in this game. In fact, I think playing the traitor is actually more fun than playing the winning side. Sorry, winning, the good side. So that's one beef I have. I'd much rather be the traitor, and you don't always have a guarantee that you're going to be. Obviously, it's like a one in five chance in a four-player game because sometimes you might just have a complete band of goodies. But it's that traitor mechanic that makes this game good fun to play. It's a little bit simple for my liking in the sense that your quests are represented by effectively playing poker hands. You know, a set of a set of fives or a straight or a sequence, that kind of thing. Which kind of detracts from the theme a bit. But you're always cracking Monty Python jokes. The traitor mechanic makes this a joy to play. And even though it's not my favourite co-op game in the world and not one that's likely to see my collection it's a good gateway game for new players and if somebody suggests it chances are i'm likely to jump in and play it so that's number nine shadows of a camelot number eight number eight is a co-op that i've only managed to play in the last month or so it's again like most other games like robots and crusoe and that it got a lot of hype in terms of when it came out I avoided it for a while because I wasn't certain the mechanics of it would work or whether the theme was lost in this game. And to be fair, that's one of the counter-arguments against this game, that the theme is somewhat lost and it requires a bit of a stretch of the imagination in order to make certain things work. But that's the Pathfinder Adventure card game. A friend of mine owns this, and if he's listening to this, he's probably going to give me a lot of flack for saying any criticisms about it. But, you know, I'm not going to be swayed. Now... Pathfinder I still enjoy. I like the game, the mechanics work well, but the theme is a little bit out there with certain things. Essentially what happens in pretty much 95% of the scenarios is that you have your band of adventurers, it's sort of like Dungeons and Dragons style, and you have a set number of locations with with randomly constructed decks. There will, be a loca- there will be a scenario that you're playing. It will say what locations are available. You will lay them out in a kind of ring shape and you will construct each deck with random items, allies, monsters, barriers, that kind of thing. And then on your turn, you flip a card off a particular location that you're at and effectively do what it says. You're either attacking a monster or you're getting past a barrier like a trap or a locked door or something or you found an ally and you're trying to recruit him, that kind of thing. So it's cool in the variety of things you can end up doing. But the idea is is that usually there is a villain, and you have to find the villain first in one of the decks, and then you have to try and close the other locations, because once you beat up the villain, he has a chance to run into a different location. The idea being that you're supposed to drain these decks out until event and close all the locations so that when you beat the villain he's got nowhere to run to and he dies. Now, 
<clears throat> my issue with this game theme-wise is that lifting a card off a location and then just seeing what happens doesn't really work unless you are really good at stretching your imagination for roleplay. And there are certain things that come up which don't really make a lot of sense depending on the location you're in. You might go to the general store and you lift up a card and it says trapped passageway. Well, exactly what in the general store dictates that a trapped passageway should be in there? And, you know, the only stretch of the imagination I can think of is that you found a trap door and the guy was out and you decided to investigate and it just happened to be trapped. Okay, you could possibly go with that. But, yeah, there are certain other areas where you are stretching the imagination big time. Especially, I mean, general store. After you've done the trap passageway, you might lift up the next card on your next turn and it's a skeleton warrior. What the hell's a skeleton warrior doing underneath a general store? You know, what does the guy keep her undead in his back garden as well? It doesn't. It, there are some detractions from the theme in that respect. My other beef with it is that it does cost a lot. You have to pay quite a lot for the base game, and the artwork on the cards is not fantastic. And you're having to pay £12 every time an adventure pack comes out in order to continue the campaign. Now, it sounds like I'm giving this a lot of jip, but here's the good thing. It is very addictive. Because you have your character, but as you go through the campaign, and there's a lot of scenarios, and they keep releasing um, additions to the campaign in little packs every sort of month or two, and each one of these will have more scenarios, more cards, so there is a huge amount of variety in the stuff that you can find. And as you go through the game, your character progresses in levels, and its abilities can improve, so there is a sense of progression in the game. It's kind of like a role-play game, but without the difficult setups or difficult roleplay element that you do get in most RPG systems. Now, some will argue that this has got nothing in common with an RPG, but I kind of disagree. The only way you can make the theme work in this card game is if you do roleplay a bit. Um, But it just gets rid of some of the complicated stuff in an RPG system where you've got to commit and do it in a huge group and somebody has to write up a giant plot that kind of thing here the card game takes care of the plot for you and it's not the most detailed plots in the world but it's a simple enough story to get you going and it's just really addictive i could play this game many times in quick succession because i'm eager to let my character develop and see what's going to happen next okay yeah it's kind of rinse wash repeat but because the decks are created randomly and the scenarios do offer different locations, and just having a different mix of characters changes the game up, there is a huge amount of variety. I've been tempted to get this in the collection, but I just don't know if the money justification of all these additions you buy is enough when this is something that I am likely to only play solo, because you pretty much want to play this as a campaign. You do not just want to do one scenario for the hell of it. You want to play this as a campaign, which means you are going to need some mates who can turn up regularly to play this game. Otherwise, they're going to lose out. Maybe I'll wait until they release the next base box later this year, where it's more of a pirate theme. That might be a bit more interesting. But, again, when my mate brings it over, I like playing Pathfinder. I think it just works pretty well as a group. And if you can do it as a campaign, that's the way to enjoy it. It's why it doesn't get much higher on the chart, but... Due to its addictive nature and variety, it deserves an 8th place spot. Pathfinder, the adventure card game. Number 7. Number 7 I've reviewed on the YouTube channel very recently, actually, and I wasn't even sure if I was going to buy this game and keep it, because um, I wasn't a huge fan of its original predecessor, because I thought it was a bit too simple. I got the idea that it was a good game, but it was basically a family-slash-kids game, and wasn't really challenging enough for me to enjoy 
but this game is Forbidden Desert. Now, Forbidden Desert is a still a fairly easy-to-play and gateway-style co-op game, but it's a simple premise. You have crashed in the middle of a desert, and the survivors must traverse through this desert, which is basically a 5x5 tile system, and you have to find the parts of all your sh- all the parts in your ship and find the ship itself and fly away however there is a sandstorm that keeps shifting the tiles all over the place as well as burying them all in sand which you have to dig through not only that but the sun obviously in the desert is hot and over time your water reserves are going to drain so you have to be able to get all the parts and fly out of there before either the you get buried in sand and you lose or the sandstorm gets to such a violent level that you just wouldn't survive it or that your water reserves run out and one of you dies of dehydration. Now, if one of you dies, that's it. There's no mentality of, leave leave Kenny, he's done for. But he's not done for, he's standing right there. No, no, leave him, he's done for. You know, you cannot do that. It's got to be everyone survives or everyone dies. And that makes this game very challenging. I've yet to beat this game. This is a hard game. It's easy to play and the rules can be taught in no time at all. And it's easy for new gamers to get it. I know from experience. But... Boy, does this one, it doesn't necessarily slap you around, but it's hard to play it. And you can get so close. You can get like a turn or two away from freedom and then something goes wrong. And, oh, you know, it just makes you want to play the game again because you can play it in like half an hour, 45 minutes if you know what you're doing and wrap up a fair few games of it. And even as a solo game, it works quite well. I quite enjoy it as a solo, but I'm happy to play this with four people as a teaching aid for co-ops. So I've got to give it credit for being really cheap at like £18 or less, yet being very challenging, having fairly good components for the price tag, and just generally being a very good gateway game for those who need a bit more of a challenge than its predecessor, Forbidden Island. It's a cool game. I do like something a little bit more involved in my co-ops, hence it's not quite as high on the top 10 as it could be, but, you know... For its game, it's a it's a simplistic game in the end. It's not like, you know, what's the word? It's not like the Royal Highness effectively of co-op games, but it does well at being a gateway game, and therefore it deserves a 7th place position. Forbidden Desert. Number 6. Number 6 is a game I've recently added to the collection. Now, I'm a big superhero lover, really. Um, I watch a lot of films like Spider-Man and Hulk and X-Men and Captain America, The Avengers, all that sort of stuff. Iron Man, any more missing? You know, there's a lot of them I like, and superheroes are just fun to watch as action films. I wasn't a big comic buff in the past. Um, I found them a little bit too kiddie, although I did watch a couple of sort of cartoon series, so I suppose I can't really talk. But certainly superheroes as a game... If it's in the game, I'm going to try the game out. Now, there have been certain games which just do not work, like the DC Deck Builder, for example. But there are some superhero games that do work. This one, number six, is Sentinels of the Multiverse. Sentinels of the Multiverse is done like your quintessential comic book-style superhero game. All the villains and heroes and that are made up. They bear similarities to their sort of film counterparts, like there's a guy called Legacy who is pretty much Superman. You've got a guy called Bunker, who's pretty much Iron Man. You've got a female character called the Wraith, who is probably more comparable to Batman in terms of a utility belt and bits and that. So they're kind of like parodies of the ones that you know fairly well. But there are a few unique inventions in there. 
Now, Sentinels of the Multiverse is a card game where each hero has its own deck. You basically have one villain, one location, and usually I recommend four heroes. It gets very difficult if you play with less, but four heroes is good. Each with their own unique deck, and you can randomize it like crazy. There is so much variety in this game, it's unbelievable. And, you know, depending on what you use, changes the way it plays. Now, it will take it in turns to, first the villain will play a card from his deck and resolve the effects. Then each hero in turn will go flip a card from their deck, play something from their hand, resolve effects. And then the environment has its own deck, which flips a card, resolve its effects, and they usually hinder the party in some respect. It's a cool idea in the sense that it really does capture the superhero theme because all the artwork on the cards is a really cool comic book style artwork. And it does feel like you are sort of back as a kid again, reading those comics of like your favourite hero. And you will have decks that you just like the look of the hero. I mean, there's one in there I really like. I probably can't pronounce her name right. I think it's the Experiet. Experiet? I, I really can't pronounce her name right. But she is effectively um, a girl more comparable to the Punisher from the proper series. Which... She just likes lots of different guns and different types of ammo and she's just gun-ho crazy. I like playing with her as a hero and her deck caters for that. But Legacy is more about inspiration and buffing up your comrades. Bunker is about taking the hits and just being an armoured tank. Uh, there are others like uh, Ra, who's kind of like a sort of resurrected Egyptian um, demigod or something. It's kind of weird. But, you know, he chucks out fire spells all the time and he's pretty good at direct damage. And this is just every single hero feels very different. Every villain feels very different. You could be fighting off against sort of Baron Blade, who's a bit like the sort of uh, mad scientist thing. Omnitron is like a uh, possessed robot like Hal gone insane. And there's other types of villains. And you can get uh, promo packs for extra villains like Misinformation. So you're fighting against like a meteor kingpin effectively. And... It just really captures a superhero theme well, and it's very challenging. I mean, you play with three or less heroes, and boy, is it hard to beat some of these heroes, sorry, these villains. With four heroes, it gets a little easier, but then I've yet to play some of the hardest heroes in this game, and I know that some of them will just beat you about. And if the game gets too easy, you've got advanced mode, which means that every single villain has a way of making it harder, and that's just sadistic. But, you know, it's a really cool game, and you can pick it up cheap. Sentinels of the Multiverse, the base game, costs £25, and there's a lot of variety in that box alone. I've gone and bought Rook City and Infernal Relics as well, because, well, well, this is me, completionist syndrome, anyone? But there's so much variety just in the base game alone, you don't even have to buy an expansion. £25 for this game is a steal for what you are getting, and it deserves a high spot. Will it go higher in the future after I've played it more times? Who knows, but... At the moment, it certainly does well as a solo game, particularly, and it deserves this high spot. So, Sentinels of the Multiverse number six. Number five. Now, this one is going to prove a shock to some people in the fact that it has dropped to number five, but I've played more games since I acquired this, and despite this one uh, being a very significant investment out of my original games and me devoting an entire month to it, it has fallen to fifth place in my rankings, and that's Arkham Horror. Yes, I know. What? Wasn't Arkham Horror number one on the previous top three before? It was, and at the time it was my favourite co-op. But let me put it this way. 
Arkham Horror does take a while to set up. Even though that I have managed to pimp out the boxes so that I've got it in a nice filing system, it's a lot quicker for me to set up than it usually is, but it's still a lengthy one, and it still is going to be most of your evening to get it finished. Okay, yeah, you could take breaks when you play it solo, and to be fair, I get more mileage out of this game by playing it solo. But... That being said, Arkham Horror is still a fantastic, immersive game. Based on the Cthulhu universe, you are a team of investigators trying to stop an Ancient One from coming into the world. And the Ancient Ones are people like Cthulhu and uh, Azathoth and all these like dodgy gods and evil deities, that kind of thing. And there's some horrific stuff in there. It's all based on H.P. Lovecraft's novels. And if you've read any of those novels, not only do you need an English literature degree to actually understand what's going on in half of them, but there's some freaky imagery in there and some really immersive stories. And this Arkham Horror game captures that in spades. When you expand this game out, there is so much variety in terms of stories that you can play. So many ancient ones, so many characters... It's impossible for it to get dull. And there are one or two nitpicks with the fact that a lot of the rules are quite fiddly. It is a difficult game to learn. You will get rules wrong from time to time. And obviously the setup time is one of those problems. But pimp the game out. I'll put a video up of how I store my Arkham Horror games in later part of this month. And you'll be able to see how I do it. But it's really good. Even as a base game, it's really good. But when you expand it... Especially when you consider that this was made by Fantasy Flight. There's a lot of expansions for this game. And they even released an expansion to the expansions. Which I don't think I've heard of being done in any other type of game. Correct me if I'm wrong. But I've not seen that happen before. Now it's really immersive. You go around various locations. You you have encounters. Which effectively is a narrative on a card that you read out. And obviously you to get into the game roleplay it, read it dramatically, and it's just great watching this really cool horror story unfold with your investigator as you battle to stop the Ancient One from appearing. So much variety, so much immersion. It's fallen a few places though because other games have surpassed it in terms of overall fun combined with cost and time and everything like that, but it's still number five, which means it's still one of my favourite co-op games of all time, That's Arkham Horror. Number four. Number four. We are continuing the superhero theme with this one. Sentinels of the Multiverse made my number six, which is still pretty high standing. But this one, in terms of its theme and variety, and just the way that the mechanics work so well, and it's based on actual superheroes that are well known, that's Marvel Legendary. Marvel Legendary is a deck-building game. Now, deck building usually means that you start off with a hand of relatively similar cards to everyone else, or identical even in some games, and you have a villain mastermind who you have to stop, and they can have one of God knows how many schemes to say whether what they're doing to the world. They might be trying to rob a bank, they might be trying to destroy the world with the cosmic cube, they might be trying to turn everyone into clones, that kind of thing. You know, typical Marvel-style villain mastermind schemes. And they will have henchmen and villains that you recognise from the Marvel Universe. But what you will have is a deck of heroes that you customize before the game starts every hero has like 15 cards devoted to them and you will put something between like three to six heroes into this deck and you will draw from the deck and pay recruit points from the cards in your hand to try and bring them into your deck when you 
have played all the cards in your deck, you shuffle the discards back and rinse and repeat, and essentially you'll keep cycling through but recruiting more heroes over time, yet also once you've got those heroes you will play them in order to create combos that effectively means you can beat up all the masterminds and the villains that come out as well as put paid to the scheme in general now a great thing with this game though is that there is so much variety and these are all these are all very popular heroes that are represented in this game and that's just the base game you get the expansions like dark city and the fantastic four and soon this month i believe we're getting a spider-man one there is a lot of different heroes you can play I mean, the first game I played, I put Captain America with Black Widow and Nick Fury. If you've watched any of the Avenger films, you'll know exactly who those are. And, you know, it worked as a great team. But then I can go, right, I fancy Gambit, Wolverine and Professor X against the Red Skull. And next time I'll think, right, I'm going to have the Fantastic Four, all four of them against Galactus. You know, there's so much different ways you can set this up. And that's just the choice of heroes and the choice of villain. The schemes usually represent, they dictate how the game runs. So you might end up with bystanders everywhere getting kidnapped. You might end up with city areas being closed off. You might have restrictions on what you can recruit and that sort of thing. They change the game very dramatically. And when this game's expanded, there are so many schemes, you are never going to play every single combination that this game has. There's just far too much. And the mechanics run smoothly. The game can be played fairly quickly. Setup time, a little bit longish, but once you get it down to a T, it's certainly not bad. And everybody gets a chance to recruit and play their favourite heroes, and you can mix and match, and you just feel like a well-oiled team against the Mastermind. It's very good fun to play. I enjoy it quite a bit, and it's no surprise that it's in my top five of co-ops of all time. I love playing this game solo. I don't mind playing it with more people but i think free players is a good soft um, soft spot um what's the word i'm looking for a, a, a good number of players basically to play this game with four is okay five is too many but it's it just goes down a treat i love this game so i look forward to my next one where i'm going to try some different heroes out and eventually work my way up to galactus and see if i can punch him square in the face number four marvel legendary Okay, we're getting into the top three now. So these are some games I really, really like. And we're going to kick start off with one of the most challenging co-op games that's out there. Now, some games like to slap you in the face quite a bit. This one pretty much slaps you in the face the second you open the box. <laughs> Literally taking off the box lid, suddenly two hands sprout from it and start slapping you in the face before you've even had a chance to work out what the game's about. It can be that hard, and that's only on normal difficulty. You could up the difficulty of this game to masochist-style levels, and it would still be entertaining, but boy, would it be a challenge. Number three is Ghost Stories. Ghost Stories I've had for a little while now, and you play a sect of Tao monks. It's set in an Asian uh, sort of landscape village, effectively, and there is a resurrected ghost called Wen Fu, who is trying to destroy your village, kill you and haunt the village and effectively rise up and resurrect himself. Now, to do this, he sends his army of ghosts out and you have a 3 by 3 set of village tiles, each with their own special abilities, randomised. And around the village, you have spaces for the ghosts to come along. 
And these ghosts can be anything from haunting ghosts, which basically creep up on you and then eventually haunt the tiles, in which case if you haunt too many tiles, you lose the game. There will be ghosts that uh, just hurt you directly. In the expansion, you can get ones that devour villagers. And I mean, I've yet to play the White Moon expansion, but I've got it and I'm looking forward to trying out my first game of it soon and getting a review up. But the game is very challenging and I've never played a co-op game where I've been so tense and so determined to win as this game. You know, as each, you'll you'll start off with like, yeah, we can do this. This is fine. You know, no problem with these ghosts here. We're doing all right. Then about two turns later, it's like, okay, they keep coming. (laughs) Right. We're still doing all right. We're still doing all right. No problem. We'll be fine. And then about another two turns later on, it's like, please stop coming. It's It's just really does get tense and crazy at a point where you can just get swarmed by these ghosts and it feels like you're going to lose, but you just push on every turn to help out your teammates, to slap a ghost in the face, and then eventually find Weng Fu when he shows up, and then he was kind of like a harder ghost, effectively, and beating him out. The mechanic is slightly luck-based. Basically, each ghost has a different color and a certain number of uh, symbols that are represented on dice. You roll that certain amount of dice depending on your character or benefits you have, and spend tokens of a similar color and eventually you're trying to get as many symbols like that on the card now i mean that sounds a little yahtzee-ish but it's very tense and it also keeps the game nice and sort of random and fun but each ghost has their own little special ability that they might uh in in what's the word incur when they come into play or while they're in play or even when they leave play you know they can reduce the number of dice you have they can stop you using tokens they can haunt tiles they can make you roll a cursed dice which basically means something really bad happens i mean like i say this game likes to slap you around but it's very challenging and a win in this game is so rewarding you know i played a solo game recently i was swarmed by maximum number of ghosts for ages i thought i was gonna die it took one roll i needed that one roll to succeed on wufang i got it and it was so rewarding not anticlimactic in the slightest in the first game i played of this i even remember three of us dying no, sorry, two of us dying when we got to the boss. He was quite a difficult boss and we were struggling. I remember sacrificing my life just so that I could give the other player one last reroll on the boss to see if we could get a decent victory. And very few co-op games am I willing to sacrifice my own life to basically help out the team. I do it more often now, but that was the first game that ever made me do that. And that's just tantamount to how tense and fun this game can be when it's when it starts hitting the fan it's really cool i it doesn't get heard of as much these days i must admit it's not one that people know of but i love bringing it to groups and i highly recommend you give this a try if you've not already that's number three ghost story number two number two is this is going to be a difficult game for me in the long run because I've been under a massive dilemma as to whether this game will replace the original. And it's a, it's a topic that's asked by many people who have bought this game or who own the original. And I mean, I admit both games are brilliant. I've yet to review this one properly, but I've done an unboxing review already and you can see that it's full of components. And when I get to review this game, how am I going to decide whether I want to keep this game and ditch the original or keep both 
or whether this game isn't as good as the original, well, okay, it's number two on the list. Okay, yes, it's, spoiler alert, it's as good as the other one. But will it make me ditch the original or not? I don't know. You haven't guessed already? Number two is Eldritch Horror. Eldritch Horror came out in the later part of 2013 by Fantasy Flight Games as a sister game to Arkham Horror. Now, I don't know how they could have released this game and not imagined that people would be thinking if it would replace the original. I can't believe they didn't have that in their mindset. So I think they just released this as a way of getting new people into the game and another excuse to release a bucket load of expansions. Because I think they pretty much maxed out what they could do with Arkham Horror. However, the way this game works is that in Arkham Horror you are in the city of Arkham. And you might be in a neighbouring village from, from expansions. Here you take place on a global world map. So you, are f- you could visit Arkham, but then you're also visiting Rome, Sydney, the heart of Africa... Uh, the Antarctica, there's all sorts of locations you can visit in the world, and the rules are more streamlined. They've taken out a lot of the fiddly rules that were in Arkham Horror. It's still not an easy game to learn or play, but in comparison, it is a lot easier. It's easier to teach, easier to get into, and a lot of the fiddliness is gone, which is a big appeal of this game. But they haven't lost the storytelling immersion of it. You still have encounters where you flip a card and read the narrative, but it's... It's hard to say. Arkham Horror, I think, has more immersion with their cards just because of the variety. But this is Fantasy Flight. You know that this game is going to get expanded. And when it does, there's going to be so much of variety in this one as well. Now, the encounters, again, get you to roll skill checks. But they have positive and negative outcomes that you read on the card. And one of the best things in this is what they have as condition cards. Now, in Arkham, you would get blessed or cursed or hurt that kind of thing and it was just something that happened to your investigator and it might have a single effect that happens from time to time these condition cards though are great you might pick up a debt or you might make a dark pact or you might get a leg injury or you might get amnesia that kind of thing and for the first part it doesn't do anything might even get you a bonus but when the mephos deck which is kind of like the event deck the timer for the game as that drains out and you flip the cards They sometimes have what's called a reckoning symbol on them. And when that happens, any of your condition cards that have a reckoning symbol on there, you either flip over or you roll to see if you flip. And when you flip them, they have another narrative on the back that dictates what happens as a result of you having this condition. And they're all different. You could have three conditions for debts in this game, basically picking up bank loans. It will say, when the reckoning icon happens, flip this card. And you would think that they would all be the same, but they're not. One debt condition would have you, for instance, you had to sign up for a dark pack to pay off your loan. The other debt card might be that somebody sends a bunch of hitmen after you to take out your kneecaps if you don't pay the money. Another one might be that you are arrested for fraud. You know, it's they're all different and you never know which one you've got until it flips. So you're kept in that area of tension as you're thinking, I've got something bad here, this is going to bite me in the back at some point, but when's it going to? Do I get rid of it now, or do I concentrate on the task in hand, which is again, banishing an ancient one? Another advantage this has over Arkham is the narrative of the monsters. The Arkham horror, when you flipped over encounters and battled a particular ancient one, you didn't necessarily feel any different depending on which ancient one you fought. In this one, you have mysteries you solve and a deck of cards that is unique to that ancient one. So you actually feel like you are fighting off against Cthulhu rather than just generic ancient one number two. And 
there were very a lot of things going for this game, but I was very impressed with it when I played it. I've been more impressed with it as I've played it. It's a little anticlimactic when you finish it, but just because it's more streamlined, easier to get to the table, it still takes a good two to three hours to play, but it's a good two to three hours. And just the immersion factor of this game is still there, and I think when this game gets expanded, it's just going to get better and better. So it deserves a good number two spot on my list for just sheer good immersion, a great little horror narrative, and effectively a good way of getting people into the Arkham Horror game if the other one got too complex. So that's my number two spot, Eldritch Horror. And finally, number one. If you've seen the list of co-op games I reviewed or played, it would probably be obvious as to which one this is, but it, there was no question for me as to what my top spot was going to. It didn't make the top spot on the last top three I did, but I think it was a second or third, I can't remember exactly where it was, but that was when I was only playing the base game, and the base game is still good fun. But I've recently expanded it with the recent Extreme Danger expansion and it's got another mini expansion, Urban Structures, in it. And this co-op game easily takes my top spot, which is Flashpoint Fire Rescue. Flashpoint Fire Rescue is a firefighting game where you are a squad team. You have to get into a burning building to save seven victims before either four victims burn and die or the building gets burnt to such a crisp that it just falls on you and you will die inside it. And... The great thing with this is that it's such a good gateway co-op game. It's easy to teach to people. And the good thing is that the alpha gamer does not happen here. It just can't. Because the fire spreads randomly. You have a grid system and you roll two dice to see where fire might start up or where fire might spread and where explosions will happen, that kind of thing. And because it's random, you can't puzzle the game out. You might be doing well at one point, but then suddenly fire springs up at one location and then explodes and gets into contact with hazardous materials and suddenly you've got an inferno on your hands and you have to deal with it whilst getting the victims out. Every role that is played is crucial to the game. They're all useful. Uh, There's the fire engine to put out fires. You've got, now with the expansion, you've got fire doors, you've got explosive objects, you've even got multi-story buildings. The base game just had bungalows, but now you can have two-story buildings, three-story buildings, a mini-expansion brought in, one with a skyscraper with elevators. Um, You can have a garage with a car that could explode. You can have a lab, which is already two stories, but then you can add a basement or an attic, depending on your preference. There's a lot of variety in this game, and it's just so much fun to play, solo or with people. I've taught this to new gamers, and they've really enjoyed it and worked as a team. I played a game of this with my friend Scott the other week and we, for a laugh, decided to take on the heroic difficulty with just the two of us and it was a tough game but we beat it. We we beat it near the end and the two of us won on a heroic difficulty map. We could still make it harder by using a particular setup but I think we did pretty well to win that game. But you could also just have it on family mode where you take out a lot of the complicated rules and to be honest they're not that complicated. A little fiddly maybe but they're not complex and just play it with your kids as a simple light co-op in sort of much the same difficulty region, well not difficulty region, same comprehension region of being able to understand and play the game as Forbidden Island Forbidden Desert. But the theme is great with this game. The fire and explosions make sense. The firefighting 
way, the way that the building can get damaged and explode makes sense. There's fire doors and engine fire engines and just other bits and bobs in this game that make sense. I mean, okay, you got the controversy of why is a cat and a dog the same material value as a person when you're rescuing victims, but I just take that as a ton-in-cheek joke more than anything else. But for the game, I mean, you can pick up the base game pretty cheaply. The expansion's not that expensive, and the expansion Extreme Danger adds a lot to this game. Um, you can check out my review of this coming up in about a week's time, I think. Next weekend I'll have the review up on the blog as a written review. And around the corner, we've even got Dangerous Waters coming out, which is a an expansion which brings in a ship and a submarine. That's going to be interesting. But I never have a bad time with this game. It's good fun. You can't puzzle it out. There's no alpha gamer. Everything you do is good action, even if it may not be the one that results in your death. And it can still be fairly challenging without being too much of a slap-in-your-face affair like Ghost Stories or Robinson Crusoe or that kind of thing. So, it's no contest that this was going to be at the top. Will it remain at the top in the long run? Who knows? There's a lot of co-ops there, and as I play more co-ops and when new ones get released, things might change. Maybe Eldritch Horror in the future could surpass Flashpoint. I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. So that's my top 10 co-op games of all time. And, like I say, I love co-ops. It's possibly my favourite theme. I just think that you can, with the right people, you can have such a blast role-playing, whatever game you're playing, working as a team, rather than people getting worked up over, oh, you've got more experience than me, I'm just going to lose this game, you know, or you're taking this too seriously, we're being too competitive. That just doesn't happen for me in co-ops. I love playing them. If someone suggests a co-op at a games event, I'm always up for it, unless something really good is (laughs) there that I really want to play. But co-ops get a big vote for me and I think they take up a good proportion of my collection as it is. I look forward to some more co-op games being released but for now I will certainly have no problem getting these to the table and playing them as often as I can. Whether it be solo or in a group they work fantastically. that's it for episode 12 you will have noticed that this is a longer podcast than usual well this is my way of trying to make up for the fact that a you've had a long wait since episode 11 and two the fact that it may come down to having only one episode a month it's not fair to just do a 30 minute episode when you might only get it once a month so keeping it in this format means that we can have a nice long podcast so you're getting plenty of content even if i am forced to only do one a month occasionally you will get two in a month you will never get more i just will not have the time to record this twice because you can imagine i've been sat here for the last hour and a half trying to record this and then i've still got to edit it and stick it online so it's time consuming process doing a podcast but hopefully this new format will give you something new to do each time and obviously this episode was completely focused on co-op games but that's just because we're in february i suspect the next podcast episode 13 will be released maybe i'll get a chance to do one at the end of the month more on co-ops but chances are i think episode 13 will be coming out in the first week of march around that point of which case it will be i'll probably keep it devoid of co-op games entirely after doing this month and get back to just you know general games you know no particular theme just going with whatever games are out obviously topics i would love to hear your suggestions on topics you would like me to discuss ask me questions perhaps you would like me to 
tell you a bit about my gaming history or ask me what type of games I like or what I, my opinions are about a particular type of gamer, that sort of thing. Ask me questions, send me emails, tweet me, put something on my Facebook wall, find me on Board Game Geek. Then I would be happy to put those as a topic in the podcast and see how things go. First impressions are going to stick around. Top 10s are going to vary throughout the year. Dice Tower, I've done enough top 10s, so there's plenty enough topics that, well, sounds like I'm stealing from the Dice Tower. You know, respect to them. They do a fantastic podcast and great top 10s. And obviously, like this one, there's going to be topics that overrun with those. But that's the great thing. Everybody can have a top 10 list that's their own. Even if it's the same topic, it's completely different for other people. Bearing in mind, they have three guys on that show. Zee Garcia, Tom Vassell, and Sam Healy. And each of their top tens is so different from each other. That's the great thing with this. You can have such differing opinions on what games rank highly. And there are some topics that they haven't done that I will do myself that I would like to do. Usually based on categories of games or particular types of people that play games. So there's going to be different ones throughout the year. And I hope it will be a interesting and informative list to do. But... That's it for episode 12. I'm now going to have a big drink of water, rest my throat out before getting ready for some games later on, some collectible card games with some friends. And then tonight I'm going to meet uh, uh, someone I met at a demo day, actually. Um, I forget the... To the life of me, I forget the name of his Instagram channel. I think it's just Board Gaming UK or something like that. But um, he... I met him and his wife at a demo day. We got on well. We were chatting about games like Dixit and that. Very nice people. And I've been very kindly invited round to his house to play a few games with him this evening. So I'm really looking forward to that. Even if it does mean driving to the opposite end of Eastleigh. <laughs> so why do I not meet many gamers who live in Portsmouth? They all seem to live in Southampton or Eastleigh. I don't know what it is. But, ah well. <laughs> That's a nitpicky thing. So... I'm going to shoot off now. Thank you for listening to episode 12 of the Broken Meeple podcast. There will continue on. There will be an episode 13. Check out the blog. Listen to the end of this podcast for details. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Take care and have a hopefully drier day than we've been having lately. Hosting for the Broken Meeple podcast is provided by SoundCloud.com. Please visit the blog at www.brokenmeeple.blogspot.com. Find me on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash thebrokenmeeple. You can also find me on Twitter frequently at thebrokenmeeple. And also on Board Game Geek, reviews and videos are posted up on a regular basis under Farmer Giles. That's F-A-R-M-E-R-G-I-L-E-S. Thank you for listening to this podcast and I hope to talk to you soon about board games and even better, I hope to play with some of you soon. Take care and enjoy gaming.